you there. And what I'll do is I'll look around and see who's there and who's not. It's a two-part series. So if you're not there, I'll invite you to guest teach the next week. How's that sound? It's actually going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. If you can be there, I would encourage you to because it's going to be a great study as we look at God's Word and really how He has revealed Himself in Scripture. It's a beautiful uh, picture. I hope you don't uh, miss. I mentioned to you last week, and I want to follow up with what I said, that, that I would tell you a little bit about where we're headed this year. As you know, I take a, year, uh, a week each year to have some silence and solitude and prayer as I pray for what the Lord has put on my heart for us to look at together in God's Word for the remainder of the year. And so I want to walk you through that in brief so you'll know where we're headed. Um, today, we're, I'm throwing you a curve a little bit. I've been reading through uh, the Bible again this year and I happen to be in Kings and Chronicles and have run across some things that have just captured my attention. And I want to share with you a little bit about what God has been teaching me uh, through the book of Chronicles. And you're going to love what, uh, what's there. Uh, I did that in part because next week we will start a four-part series on a biblical definition of the family. And since most of our families are gone today at the ski trip, I wanted to wait until next week to begin that series. Now, as you hear me say that, I want to ask you to be careful because some of you have already started doing some uh, definitions in your mind and you're thinking, okay, family, I'm not sure if this applies to me or not. Let me just tell you that when we look at the biblical definition of family, you will find that it's much more inclusive than you might expect. To the point that by the time we're done walking through this, understanding what God has created to reflect His image, that there is not a believer in Jesus Christ that exists outside of the context of who we are as a family of God. So it's going to apply to all of us. But it is some things that we need to hear in our world today because the definition is being redefined. Okay? So we're going to walk through that, a four-part series that I hope you will be in prayer with me about. After that, we're going to go into an Old Testament book, the book of Nehemiah. I'm doing it for a couple of reasons. One is, um, I want us to spend time in the Old Testament. I think there are some great truths that we need to understand by looking at some of the Old Testament uh, stories. And in Nehemiah in particular, I chose him because his story is one of spiritual revival. And my hope and prayer is that as we go through the, the book of Nehemiah, that there might be a spiritual revival that takes place in our life and in the life of this church as well. Uh, after Nehemiah in the spring, we're going to do a study on Proverbs. Now, this is going to be a little unique because uh, we're only going to cover the first nine chapters and we're not going to do it um, where we just kind of look at moral principles for how to live a good life, which sometimes you can look at Proverbs in that way. And there's some great stuff there, but the title of that particular series is going to be uh, The Pursuit of Wisdom Personified. Because what we're going to see is what the, the, the writer of Proverbs does is he lines out a picture of what wisdom looks like in the life of one who trusts in God. And what we're going to do is we're going to take what he says and we're going to tie it to the life of Christ. And we're going to see how everything that's communicated here is fulfilled here in the person and work of Christ. And so when we read the book of Proverbs, what we're going to find is the directions of what it means to live a life like Christ. After we get through with that series in the summer, it's going to go right into a study that will begin in the book of 1 Corinthians. We will have time to work through about the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. The reason I chose that... Now, many of you know 1 Corinthians and you're thinking, oh, great, this is a church that's really messed up. And that's a true statement. Uh, they have written a letter to Paul with some really uh, amazing issues that they are dealing with in their church that they want his feedback on. But Paul spends four chapters before he ever gets to that list that they've written him about, explaining to them how valuable it is to pursue true wisdom to the point that if that were their chief aim, they wouldn't have the questions they were asking him. That's his whole point of the first four chapters. So it will flow very nicely out of what we will have looked at through the summer. So that's where we're headed. I'm excited about what the Lord's put on my heart. Let me ask you to do one thing. Um, because this has been true every single year without exception. I'll sit down and I'll spend that time, and, and the Lord really lays this out for us in terms of what we will go through together. 
And somewhere down the road, in this next year, there's going to be a place where we come. I promise you it's going to happen. You look for it with me. Where what we will be studying happens to fit perfectly with what's going on in the life of this church that we could have never seen in the very beginning. And it will be very clear to us that the Lord prepared some things beforehand that we just walked right into. It's happened every single year. And I don't believe this is going to be an exception, so look for it. Okay? Before we go to God's Word this morning, let's offer this time to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you that we can just dip into your Word just anywhere and see great truths that apply directly to our life. Whether those are stories that existed thousands of years ago or or ones that are much closer than that. But in all of them, they speak to the present need that exists within our heart in this very moment. And I believe that that will be no exception in terms of what we will look at together this morning. So Lord, we offer this to you. May your spirit be among us. Enlighten our hearts to see your truth. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 17 is where we will begin. You've got 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. And as you're turning there, let me uh, give you a little quick background. Uh, it's important to understand what immediately precedes uh, the main character that we will look at, King Jehoshaphat. Uh, king Jehoshaphat was the son of a, a man by the name of King Asa. And according to Scripture, King Asa says was a good king who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. And as we would see, as we were, if we were to look at those verses, it would explain to us that he removed all the foreign altars and, and sacred pillars that were used uh, for pagan worship. Asa went through and just basically tore them all down. He annihilated them. He, he also strengthened Judah's army. And that was important because Asa faced a lot of battles during his time as king. And he had one particular enemy that just didn't seem to want to go away. The king was King Basha, who happened to be king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And you'll remember by this time, it's followed Solomon. And after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel has divided. And they're now ruled by two separate kings. The, the northern kingdom is called the kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom is the kingdom of Judah. The north was known as a, a place that was compromised. They, by and large, were not friends with the kingdom of Judah. And, and that's because Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel did not make some of the same choices. We read about King Asa, how he went through and, and destroyed all those pagan centers of worship. The northern kingdom, under their leadership, decided it's better just to leave them alone. Go along just to get along. Don't make waves. We'll just kind of absorb them into our worship so that everybody's happy. Now, Asa wasn't perfect, but he did a pretty good job of protecting Judah from the compromise of the nations that surrounded them, including the nation of Israel to the north, a nation of compromise. As the son of Asa, Jehoshaphat assumes the throne. He was the fourth king of this nation of Judah. And he had a great start. In fact, he kind of one-upped his dad in many of the efforts to bring spiritual integrity to the nation of Judah. If you would look at that with me, beginning in chapter 17, verse 3. It says, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat. Here's why. Because he followed the example of his father David's earlier days and did not seek the Baals. That's the false pagan worship. He sought the God of his father, followed his commandments, and did not act as who? Israel, the northern kingdom. So the Lord established the kingdom in his control, and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. He took great pride in the ways the Lord ways of the Lord, and again, removed the high places and the ashram from Judah. Then in the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, and he lists several there, and sent them out into the cities of Judah. 
And with them, he sent some Levites and listed them as well. And they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. And they went throughout all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. Now, the dread of the Lord was on all the kingdoms of the land which were around Judah, so they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. Some of the Philistines brought gifts and silver as tribute to Jehoshaphat. The Arabians also brought flocks, 7,700 rams, 7,700 male goats. So Jehoshaphat grew strong, greater and greater. He built fortresses and store cities in Judah. And he had large supplies in the cities of Judah, and warriors, valiant men in Jerusalem. It says that Jehoshaphat sought God, that he followed his commandments, and he did not act as Israel did. Now, keep that contrast in mind. It's on purpose. And you need to recognize that and tuck it away, because it will become very important as we follow his story. Jehoshaphat, as we said, went through and destroyed all the idols of pagan worship that Israel didn't bother to worry about. And not only that, he went as far as to establish what I think are the first home group Bible studies in the history of the Bible. Really. If you look at the history of Scripture, most of what you'll see is God calling the people to the religious leaders for the place, to a place of worship, Right? But what Jehoshaphat has done here is he's taken the religious leaders and what has he done? He sent them to the people. And what did they have with them? The Word of the Lord. And what were they doing? They were teaching the Word of God to the people. Instead of expecting people to come to him, Jehoshaphat sent leaders to the people. That's because Jehoshaphat had determined that discipleship needed to be a key distinction of God's people. Okay, don't miss that. Discipleship needed to be a key distinction of God's people. He wanted everyone to understand how the truth of God's Word applied to their everyday life. And I want you to notice how far-reaching that impact was. Look again at verse 11. It says, And some of the Philistines brought... Get, let me back up to the, sec, the last of verse 10. It says, So they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. And some of the Philistines brought gifts of silver as tribute. The Arabians brought those flocks of rams and goats. And Jeho- Jehoshaphat grew stronger and greater, built fortresses. Now, I want you to read and think about what just happened here. Is there anything in our passage that indicates that Jehoshaphat asked for any of those gifts that were being brought to him? No. Is there anything in our passage that indicates that Jehoshaphat displayed his military strength by going to war and winning battle after battle after battle? Is that what happened? No. He didn't fight a single battle. He didn't ask for a single dime. But people were showing up at his doorstep, paying tribute to him and making sure that they didn't make war with him because of his fear in the Lord. He had not fought a single battle, but nobody was going to touch him. What we see is the fulfillment of God's promise to provide for his people when they put their eyes on him. That's another way of talking about trusting in him, when they, when they kept their eyes on him. See, these gifts that were being brought to Jehoshaphat were to no credit of him in terms of what he had accomplished. They are evidences of God's grace. Jehoshaphat didn't earn that reward because of strategic planning. He didn't win peace because of valiant warriors who went out to conquer in battle. This king and his people grew greater and greater, stronger and stronger not by their own efforts, but as a gracious gift of God because they kept their eyes on Him. Now, don't forget that. Because unfortunately, 
King Jehoshaphat and his people took their eyes off the Lord and they began to take that grace that had been given to them for granted. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. This is one verse, but I want you to listen carefully to all that's included in this verse. Now, Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor. Now, we know that. Look at what he did. He allied himself by marriage with Ahab. Ahab is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Haven't we already talked about the history between Judah and Israel? Those battles that King Asa fought, Jehoshaphat's father, against that enemy that wouldn't go away, the northern kingdom. Ahab is the son of that king. And he was a man of great compromise. In fact, he was the first king to become officially allied with a pagan nation through marriage. And boy, did he pick a doozy. (laughs) He married a woman by the name of Jezebel. And if you know anything about Scripture, that should give you the weebie-jeebies when you hear that name. Because this was very, arguably one of the most vile and evil women in all of Scripture. She was crafty, malicious, a very cruel woman. She had no fear of God. In fact, she had no fear of man. Her atrocities were unimaginable. And yet, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, agrees to form an alliance with Israel by taking his son and entering into a marriage with the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. What was he thinking? That was not a good idea. I believe Jehoshaphat has taken his eyes off the Lord and now he's taking matters into his own hands. Instead of trusting God, he's relying on the wisdom of man and he's literally in bed with the enemy. Right off the bat, I think because of God's grace, he tries to reveal to Jehoshaphat what a bad idea this is. See, Ahab wants to take advantage of this alliance and essentially get Jehoshaphat and the strength of all this army that he has amassed to basically go to war for him, to win battles that he couldn't win on his own. Look at chapter 18, verse 2. Some years later, now this is after that marriage and alliance had formed, he, being Jehoshaphat, went down to visit Ahab at Samaria. That's the, that would be the, the capital of uh, the kingdom of the northern kingdom of Israel. Ahab slaughtered many sheep and oxen for him, and the people were with him and induced him to go up against Ramoth Gilead. And Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Will you go with me against Ramoth Gilead? And he said to him, I am as you are, my people is your people, and we will be with you in the battle. Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, let's inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel assembled the prophets, 400 men, and said to them, shall we go against Ramoth Gilead to battle? Or shall I refrain? And they said, go up, for God will give it into into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him. Can I get a picture of what's happening here? Jehoshaphat has left Judah to go up to the capital of the northern kingdom in Samaria, and when he gets there, the red carpet's rolled out. There's a big meal going on. There's lots of people. It's a very festive occasion, and they're doing everything they can to make an impression upon Jehoshaphat, who had formed this alliance with the northern kingdom. And I think somewhere during that meal, as they're drinking and having a good time, Ahab just kind of leans over to Jehoshaphat and says, Hey, do you realize how strong we are when we put our armies together? I bet there's nobody who could stand against us. Will you you go into battle with me and let's just take care of this nation that is a bother? 
Jehoshaphat, in response to that request, basically commits himself before doing anything else. What does he say? In verse, uh, in verse 3, the second half, he says, I am as you are, my people as your people, and we will be with you in battle. In other words, of course, Ahab, we're practically family. We're really not all that different. Now, let me ask you something. Is that a true statement? No. It is not a true statement. Do they really same, share the same devotion to the one true God? No, they do not. And that becomes crystal clear when Ahab calls forth his prophets. All 400 of them. And not so surprisingly, they all agree. Should we go to battle? Of course you should. Now, when is the last time that you can remember 400 people agreeing without discussion or dissension on the question, or answer to a question? I mean, how realistic is that? I bet if we took the group that's here this morning that's not near 400 and we said, hey, we're going to change the color of the carpet. Let's get together and decide what color is going to be best. What are the chances that we're going to all come to agreement without discussion or dissension? Not a chance, I'll tell you that right now. Been there, done that. It's not going to happen. So how did they all agree with him? Well, Jehoshaphat hears this. And he says, you know, I think we probably need to ask somebody else. Is there a prophet of the Lord? He must have some indication that that's not the case here. Let me just as a little side note. Can you think of an event in Scripture where there were 400 prophets who went against a single prophet of God? You remember a story that happened to be? The prophets of Baal, right? Guess what? That's those guys. This is them. It's the 400 prophets of Baal. And Jehoshaphat, to his credit, says, I don't know, maybe we ask somebody else. Is there another guy? And if you don't think the Bible doesn't have humor, then you're not reading it. Because look at verse 7. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Well, there's one guy, but I don't want to inquire of him because I hate him. He never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. He's Micah, the son of Imla. But Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. He said, yeah, there's one guy, but I don't like him. He never does what I want him to do, so I just quit asking him. That's what he said. And Jehoshaphat says, no, I think we need to ask him. So they go and get this guy named Micah. And look at what they say to him when they get there. Verse 12. The Bible is so great. Then the messenger who went to summon Micah spoke to him saying, behold, the words of the prophet are uniformly favorable to the king. So please let your word be like one of them and speak favorably. <laughs> but Micah said, As the Lord lives, what my God says, that will I speak. So they go up to him and they say, Hey Micah, here's the deal. The king wants your opinion. Here's what everybody's saying. You need to say what they say. And he says, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to say what God says. So now you know how 400 prophets agreed, right? They're not listening to what God says because they're not prophets of God. They are prophets of Baal masquerading as prophets of God. And they're simply doing what the king wants, not what God says. And just as Ahab feared, Micah's going to have some strong words that are not in his favor. Look at verse 16. This is Micah speaking. Look at what he says. So he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on His throne and all the host of heaven staying on His right and on His left. And when the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, king of Israel, to go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said this while another said that. 
then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, How? He said, I'll go be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of his prophets. Then he said, You are to entice him and prevail also. Go and do so. Now therefore the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of these your prophets. For the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chanana, came near and struck Micah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? And Micah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you enter an inner room to hide yourself. Then the king of Israel said, Take Micah, return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this man in prison, feed him sparingly with bread and water, until I return safely. Now there are several things that are important about what just happened here. First, I want you to notice that right off the bat, Micah condemns Ahab's leadership, doesn't he? He looks at the northern kingdom and he says, look, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They have no master. In other words, the king is worthless. Hmm. Now think about that. This is a ruthless and immoral king. What did Micah just do when he spoke the truth of God's word? He risked his life, did he not? But he was unwilling to compromise, even at the risk of his very own life. The next thing he does after condemning the king is he condemns his advisors. He he goes on to describe that, look, this is all a plan of God, and there's a deceiving spirit that is speaking through those prophets because you're going to go into battle and you're going to get destroyed. And... Ahab, as you might expect, said, See, I told you, he never says anything good about me. And I think there's a scene here that's very familiar to a New Testament scene. When one of those pagan false prophets walks up to Micah, slaps him on the face, mocks him, and then they wrongfully condemn him to prison. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? But Micah, not unlike Jesus, was unwilling to compromise. He was there to bear witness to the truth. And that was the truth. As we think about this scene and all that's happening, I don't know about you, but I'm looking at this without reading any further, thinking, well, thank goodness God has made this so clear, and Jehoshaphat will see this whole debacle and go, this is crazy, I'm not doing this. That's what should happen, right? But that's not what happened. It's not what happened at all. And here's why. Don't miss this. When you or I take our eyes off the Lord, we become blinded to the truth. Did you hear that? When we take our eyes off the Lord, like Jehoshaphat has done, we become blinded to the truth. What should have been obvious was completely overlooked. Jehoshaphat went along with the majority vote and went into battle as an ally of King Ahab. And it almost cost him his life. (laughs) Now Ahab tried to outsmart God. This is what he did. Okay, Normally the kings dress up in their royal garments as they go into battle, representing the nation of which they serve. But Jehoshaphat, or Ahab tells Jehoshaphat, you know what? I've been against these guys before, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wear clothes just like my other men, and I'm going to hide in the middle of them. But you go ahead and put your royal garments on. That's what he did. It reminded me, I don't know if this is going to date me a little bit, but when I was in college, there was a guy by the name of Gary Larson who wrote a comic called The Far Side, right? One of my favorite ones, I still remember it. There's these two deer staring at each other, right? And one of them had this target on the side of his body. The other one looks at that deer and says, that's a bummer of a birthmark, Well, that's kind of what's happening here. Jehoshaphat's going into this battle with a big old target on his side while King Ahab is hiding in the middle of his own men. What a coward. But here's the deal. That's the other 
idea or the other thing that happens as a result of deception. It makes you do foolish things. It blinds you to the truth and it causes you, because of that, to make foolish decisions. Look at what happens in chapter 18, verse 31. So it came about when the captains of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat, no, no secret there as to why, they said, it is the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him. But Jehoshaphat cried out and the Lord helped him. and God diverted them from him. Then it happened when the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel that they turned back from pursuing him. He was delivered by the grace of God. And a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of his armor. So he said to the driver of the chariot, Turn around and take me out of the fight, for I am severely wounded. And the battle raged that day, and the king of Israel propped himself up in his chariot in front of the Arameans until the evening. And at sunset, he died. Just like God said. God was gracious to Jehoshaphat when he cried out. I think maybe he realized in the midst of that battle what a mistake he'd made. And just to emphasize the sovereign control of God. Did you get the picture of what happened with that arrow? This is a random guy. Doesn't even have a name. Who I, in my mind, picture just, poof, shooting an arrow in the air. Somewhere towards that mass of people. And what does it do? It finds its mark. Just as God said it would. Hits Ahab in a very small place where his armor does not cover, pierces him, and kills him. So you tell me. Is it better to go with the crowd and the opinions of man? That's option A. Or should you trust in the Lord in the gift of His grace? That's option B. Before you answer, remember that if you choose option B, to put your trust in the Lord, then that means you've got to relinquish your personal control. Is that what you're willing to do? Are you willing to take it out of your hands and put it into His? (laughs) Now, before you rush to a conclusion to that question, I want to ask you to think about it for a second. In fact, I want you to take a moment to consider your life and the decisions that you've made to get you to the place where you are today. Okay, just a little panoramic view, if you will, of some of the things that you've done in life to get you to the place that you are today right now. Let me ask you to consider this question. Have I been following the Lord or have I gone my own way? What has been more influential in your decision? Is it God's Word or man's opinion? See, Jehoshaphat was a righteous man who lost his way when he started following the crowd. And he became blinded to the truth. And he made foolish decisions. And what is true of the king is true for you and I as well. How did you get to this place? Now here's the great part of the story. As bad as this situation is, we're going to get to see another example repeated all throughout story of God's gracious redemption. And what he's going to tell you is no matter how you answer that question about where you are right now, it is never too late to start doing the right thing. To make the next right decision. Read with me chapter 19, verse 1. Then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety by the grace of God to his house in Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? But there is some good in you, for you have removed the Asheroth from the land and you have set your heart to seek the Lord. Jehu meets him at at the door as soon as he walks into his house in Jerusalem and he says, What are you thinking? You've made a bad decision. 
bad company corrupts good morals. And you had good morals. You were making right decisions. But you became aligned with those who don't. And it was almost your downfall. I look at that and I think that's a good friend. Who's willing to speak the truth in love. Now look at how Jehoshaphat responds. Verse 4. So Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem and went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of of their fathers. And he appointed judges in the land and all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he goes on to explain how these judges were placed in all these fortified cities and how they were to show no partiality, but in everything that they did, they were to turn to the Word of God and determine what is the right way to make decisions in the problems that the people were facing. So when they came to an impasse and there were uh, confusion or questions or discussions or debates, they were to go to these judges that Jehoshaphat had pointed in the cities and they were going to open up God's Word and see what He said. And they were going to be committed to following that. Look again at verse 10. And whenever any dispute comes to you from your brethren who live in these cities, between blood and blood, between law and commandment, statutes and ordinances, you shall warn them that they may not be guilty before the Lord and wrath may not come on you and your brethren. Thus you shall do and not be guilty. And behold, Amariah, the chief priest, will be over you and all that pertains to the Lord and Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the ruler in the house of Judah, and all that pertains to the king. Also the Levites shall be officers among you. Act resolutely and the Lord will be with you the upright. So this is very comparable to what had happened in the beginning of his reign. You remember it still talked about those fortified cities. What did he do in those fortified cities in the beginning? Who did he put there? He put valiant men. Men of battle. Men of military strength. Now he's going back around and he's appointing men again, but this time it's who? It's judges. It's spiritual leaders who are there to use God's Word to guide the people's decisions. Because he's saying, look, if you follow what he says, then you won't be brought to destruction. But if you don't, you will. How does he know that? He was just there. The other thing that's unique about this second time is instead of sending people out there to to give them this message, what does he do? He goes himself. He goes with these men. He became a part of the solution by... Carrying out that plan. The things that he did were intended to strengthen the spiritual integrity of the people from the inside. See, before he had protected the military strength from those who might attack them from the inside, outside. But Jehoshaphat realizes that the enemy is just as strong on the inside. It's the enemy of compromise. And so he set up strongholds to ensure the spiritual integrity of the people so that they would turn to the Lord and be guided by His Word. Because again, it's it's never too late to start doing the right thing. So now it's time for this strategy to be put to the test. He said there at the very end of verse 11, he says, Act resolutely and the Lord will be with the upright. In other words, we're going to trust Him that He'll take care of us. Well, that's going to be put to the test. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab, the sons of Ammon, together with the sons of the Mayunites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, the En Gedi. The report is that there is a great multitude that is coming to attack Jerusalem. It is an alliance of three very strong and military uh, mighty nations. Really, the message to Jehoshaphat is, we're in trouble. We don't have a chance against an army like that. Look what Jehoshaphat does in verse 3. Jehoshaphat was afraid, as he should be. Look at what he does. He turns his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. 
So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord, and they even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. The king doesn't panic. What does he do? He prays. And he calls all the people of Judah to do the same. Here we see the evidence of spiritual wisdom. Unlike the deceitfulness that leads to foolishness, here we see wisdom, not leading to panic, but to prayer. Instead of making their own plans, they went to the Lord and asked for His. They were seeking the Lord. I call this kind of a holy pause, right? It's just stopping in the midst of a very scary situation and they're just saying, Lord, we need You. Every hour, we need You. Jehoshaphat didn't take things into his own hands like he had done before. He put it in God's hands. And the people followed his lead. Look at verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not the God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Now, get the picture here. All the people have gathered. Jehoshaphat has stood up and now he's leading them in prayer. And he's turning their attention to the Lord. Pick up with me in verse 10. And now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and the Mount Seir, whom they, uh, from, from whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of their land of Egypt, And they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. What he's doing here is he's looking back when the people of Israel came out of Egypt. And they wanted, they came against these very same people. And they wanted to destroy them on their way to the promised land. And God said, no, you're not going to do that. And so knowing that history, Jehoshaphat says, these are the same people. And in gratitude for what you did, now they're going to try to destroy us. Behold, in verse 11, how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance. Notice, he's given credit where credit is due. And then in verse 12, O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are on you. And all of Judah, was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. I tell you what, verse 12 has become one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Lord, we as a people are in an impossible situation. It is overwhelming to the point that we don't know what to do. But our eyes are on You. And I love the picture of who's there. It's the old and the young. It's the moms, the dads, the kids, the infants. Everyone is there. Now let me tell you how the story ends and then I want us to talk about how this applies. God instructs the people of Judah to go out against this three-nation alliance, the, nation, the, the war that they have no chance of winning. And He says, but I don't want you to prepare for battle. Just go and watch. Because the battle doesn't belong to you, the battle is mine. And I want you to see what I will do. So they do. They go out and all the people who have been praying go stand. And there, as far as the eye can see, is a mass of nations who are ready to destroy them. The war cry can be heard. And I don't know if somebody said something about somebody's mother, but all of a sudden, one army turns on another army. And then the third army turns on that first army. And the next thing you know, a battle is raging and Israel is not involved. They're watching as those three nations annihilated each other. Not a single human being left standing. The Scripture tells us that it took Judah three days to go and retrieve the plunder from a battle that they never had to fight. Now, isn't that amazing? So if I could, let me finish up by paraphrasing a passage in chapter 20, verse 
20. I'm going to call this our perfect vision passage, right? Chapter 20, verse 20. 2020. When they arose early in the morning and went out in the wilderness of Tekoa. When they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, here's my paraphrase, listen to me, O Melanie Park Church. Trust in the Lord your God and you will be established. Put your trust in His words spoken through the apostles and for the, from the prophets and you will succeed. Now, like Judah, we need to come to the understanding that we too are in a battle. It's a cosmic battle. It's not against an army that we can see. Scripture tells us that the battle that we fight is not against flesh and blood. It says that it is against the authorities, against cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And not unlike Judah, let me tell you something, it's not a battle that we can win on our own. We will be utterly destroyed if that's what we try to do. If we have any chance at all, it will only be because we stand together before the Lord with our kids, our husbands and our wives, with our friends, with our family. And we confess together in the sight of all the people, that we're overwhelmed. That we don't know what to do. But Lord, our eyes are on You. In fact, I want us to just say that. Lord, our eyes are on You. Let's say that again. Lord, our eyes are on You. That should reflect where our heart should be every moment of every day because the battle we face is the Lord's, not ours. Our job is to be committed to the truth. To continue essentially what Jehoshaphat started, right? By spending time as God's people, being guided by God's Word, not just here, but in our homes, with our families, with our friends. We need to consider how to encourage one another towards love and good deeds. To be a people who are defined by discipleship. Protecting the spiritual integrity by our decisions being guided by the truth of God's Word. Because like Judah, we are surrounded by a world of compromise. So let's not fall into the trap of forming an alliance with those who do not share our faith. Because it will lead to our destruction. Listen to me when I tell you that if you think you're wise enough to accomplish a good purpose by taking your eyes off of God and forming an alliance with man because of what seems good and right in the eyes of man, you are an arrogant fool. Just like Jehoshaphat. We need to be like Jehoshaphat version 2. <laughs> a humble man who looked what was, at what was before him and said, Lord, this is too big. I don't know what to do, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to depend on you. See, we are in the world, but not of the world. The Scripture tells us that we are ambassadors, which basically tells us is that we reside in a foreign nation that is not our own. And like an ambassador, we have been given a mission. And that mission in Scripture is very clear because it says that we are to go as though God were making an appeal through us, begging people on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why? Because He alone is our rock and our salvation, our stronghold. And in Him we will not be greatly shaken. We cannot win this battle against the evil power of sin that surrounds us. We understand that, right? But here's what we're supposed to do. Picture this in your mind. Like the people of Israel, let's march up to the battle line. And let's look at the cross. 
And let's observe together what God did through the person and work of Christ to win a victory that we could not accomplish on our own. Right there in front of us. And then, in gratitude for the gracious gifts that we are still going out and receiving day after day after day, having won a battle we never fought. Live in obedience and trust in Him who gave us all those things. Amen? Let's be that people. A people who says, I don't know what to do. It's overwhelming at times. But my eyes are on you. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. I love your word. And the evidence of your love for us. And such vivid portrayals of how you work in our lives when we trust you. And I love the example of your redemption. That in moments where we see pictures of real people making foolish decisions headed in the wrong direction, you still graciously protect them, giving them an opportunity to turn to you. And when they do, you redeem them. You save them. You set them free. We are those people. So, Father, may we live in gratitude of the gracious gifts that we receive from you each and every day with lives of obedience, guided by your word, in loving fellowship with one another, in one spirit unified under one God from whom all good things come. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for winning the battle. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great day.